You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Doctor's Lounge. I'm Dr. Scott Barber, and you're listening to me on America's Web Radio. Good morning, everybody. How are you doing, Producer Dave? Good. Thank you. All right. Well, today, Wait shocking. A I might add frustrated. Yeah, Good frustrated. Frustrated. I'm frustrated, too. I got to tell you, this pandemic has consumed my life, uh, both professionally and personally, for the last seven, eight months, and it's definitely getting a little old. Today's show, we're actually going to unpack a lot of what's been going on with the coronavirus pandemic, and we want to help people get a, a better frame of reference about what's happening we're living in full Orwellian disinformation, free speech suppressing lockdown in many ways. It's not only that we're not getting proper information, it's that they're preventing people from providing you that information and it's getting really quite frightening. And part of my show today is encouraging people to stand up for the little things. You know, as this pandemic has unfolded, we've all been a little bit scared. I think we've all been frustrated. The fear has come from many angles. People are obviously afraid for their health and well-being and that of their loved ones, fear for their businesses and fear for their lives in general being disrupted in such profound ways, ways that we've never seen it. And as information has come out over the last seven months, and there's a lot of great information out there. The numbers are flattening in terms of deaths. I know the media is trying to convince you every day that there are spikes everywhere and that new cases are everywhere, but the fact of the matter is deaths are going down, and that is a great thing. We're also learning that lots of people out there have T-cell immunity, so it's another type of immunity that we have. The, most people are sort of familiar with antibodies. Uh, that's B-cell immunity. Not everybody has B-cell immunity. A lot of people also have what we call T-cell immunity. So even if you don't have antibodies, there are people out there who are resistant to COVID-19 because of their T-cell immunity. Another important aspect of that is because of this T-cell immunity and because of the way coronaviruses behave and SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, behaves very much like other coronaviruses that we're familiar with, such as the SARS-CoV-1 that caused the outbreak in 2003, that the herd immunity that we get typically occurs uh, with about 20 to 30 percent of exposure to a population, and we're seeing that places like Sweden, who did not implement any lockdowns, who did not implement any face mask mandates, that did not close down their their school children's schools, have similar results to much of the world and actually the one of the best uh, outcomes in all of Europe. And in fact, when we look at Sweden, they had about 56.4 deaths per 100,000 people. 
when you compare that to the United Kingdom, they had 69.9,000, I'm sorry, 69.9 deaths per 100,000 people. And Spain had 60.8 deaths per 100,000 people. And Italy, 58.16 deaths per 100,000 people. And what is the takeaway here? You have Sweden, which I just said, 56.4 deaths per 100,000 people, no lockdowns, kids went to school, and no face mandates. Did better than UK, Spain, and Italy, all who implemented some of the most restrictive lockdowns in the entire world. And the takeaway from that is these lockdowns and masks are not really having any effect, which is what would have been predicted by medical professionals before the Orwellian speech suppression and disinformation campaign got started. Now, one of the primary reasons that we have this show, The Doctor's Lounge, is to promote free market medicine. And the the most important feature of free market medicine is that it elevates and preserves and and really cares for the doctor-patient relationship where a doctor's fidelity is to their patients and that individual needs are promoted and not a one-size-fits-all government-run socialized medicine system that we have seen uh, horrible results all across the world. The COVID-19 pandemic has really illustrated just how bad a socialized medicine program is. And we can see it, first of all, with the initial response to the pandemic. We know that the World Health Organization essentially puppeted or parroted the Chinese Communist Party's uh, presentation of COVID, what the Chinese Communist Party wanted us to know, which initially there was this, this information put out there that there was no human-to-human transfer of coronavirus. Of course, people like me and other free market medicine doctors who went to medical school and understood the science knew that that was probably not the case. There was this concerted effort to allow travel from China to the rest of the world. And in fact, the World Health Organization helped create the circumstances where at a time when China was banning travel from Wuhan inside of China, they were allowing travel to the rest of the world from the Wuhan province and essentially spread this pandemic across the world. That is government-run healthcare. The World Health Organization is a branch of the United Nations and is a political body, and that's what government-run healthcare typically is. If we had a fully socialized medicine system in this country, and believe me, it's been moving in that direction for a very long time, And the passage of the Affordable Care Act that's commonly referred to as Obamacare all but created those circumstances. And it is very important for people to understand, I'm seeing it now in my own practice, that my employees are frustrated that they don't have very many choices. Well, that's because the penetration of government control in our healthcare system is driving us towards this one-size-fits-all, government-run, socialized medicine Situation, and we need to resist it at all, uh, with all of our effort. And the best way to do that is with voting. 
And when I talk about all of these issues today, the fundamental point that I'm trying to make is our only option at this point to get ourselves out of this pandemic is at the ballot box. We simply have to elect leaders who are going to listen to actual scientific experts and not political animals uh, in order to send our kids back to school, open our businesses and end these ridiculous lockdowns where the evidence is overwhelmingly clear that they're not doing anything to protect us and are causing significant harm. I know people might be listening and might be saying that I'm being alarmist, that I'm engaging in conspiracy theory. Uh, I am going to present to you just some facts today that ought to illustrate to you, even if you don't agree with everything I'm saying, it ought to at least illustrate to you that something rotten is going on. I submit to you that if you had not, if we had a complete socialized medicine system in this country, you would have never heard about hydroxychloroquine. I know most of my listeners that listen weekly are familiar with hydroxychloroquine, but for people who haven't heard this show before, hydroxychloroquine is a medication that has been FDA approved for 65 years. It's one of the safest medicines that has ever been prescribed. It is used as prophylaxis for malaria to treat malaria. This medication has been distributed billions of times in the last 65 years and, again, has one of the safest profiles of any drug alive. In fact, Mark Levin, a radio talk show host, posted a picture on his social media sites of a picture of uh, former President Barack Obama's uh, bottle of hydroxychloroquine uh, that I think was dated around 2008. And, you know, we don't know what it was for, but presumably it was prophylaxis for malaria or perhaps even a prophylaxis for a, a SARS uh, virus. Nevertheless, the president was given this medication. We have been distributing this medication to people, old people, young people, pregnant people, all kinds of people who travel in areas of the world where malaria is prevalent. And we never looked at their heart condition to do this. Nobody ever got a pre-screening EKG to confirm that this medicine was going to be safe for them, we already knew it was safe. And how did we know that? Because we've been using the medication for 65 years. Then suddenly, SARS-CoV-2 outbreak comes up, and people like me, who are not really that familiar with treating SARS up until that point, I've studied it in medical school, I was certainly aware of coronavirus. I've studied coronavirus in the past, but it's really not been a scope of my practice to to treat patients with COVID-19 or any kind of coronavirus. So I started educating myself, which is what we do in medicine. When I have patients that come in and they have issues that I'm not 100% aware of all the facts or I haven't read the data recently, I do what all doctors do, and I go and I do research and I educate myself so that I can present the best possible treatment options to my patient. And one of the first things I discovered was hydroxychloroquine has tons of research, not a little, tons of research out there suggesting that it is effective at the treatment of coronavirus. In fact, Dr. Fauci published a paper in 2005 when he was the director of the NIH that concluded 
and using his language, hydroxychloroquine is not only the vaccine, but the cure for SARS-CoV-1, which, by the way, is 78% similar to SARS-CoV-2, or what we call COVID-19. So there was already a familiarity, an experience of using hydroxychloroquine to treat coronaviruses in the past, and it would seem logical to try and use it for the treatment of COVID-19. But suddenly, there was this attack on COVID-19. There was this, all of a sudden, the medication is dangerous. It's killing people. And I'm thinking to myself, what are you guys talking about? This medicine has been FDA approved for 65 years, has been safely used, billions of doses. In fact, if you go look at uh, the research on hydroxychloroquine, something like 50 deaths have been attributed to hydroxychloroquine as it relates to cardiac issues in the last 65 years. Did you just hear what I said? Billions of doses over 65 years. We had 50. That's right, 50. 49, 50 people that supposedly had deaths attributable to cardiac issues surrounding toxicity from hydroxychloroquine. And more importantly, if you look at those 50 people, they were taking doses of hydroxychloroquine much higher than anything we would use to treat COVID-19. So where did this attack on hydroxychloroquine, where did this sudden fear about hydroxychloroquine's cardiac issues come from? Well, early on in the pandemic, there was a VA study that came out, and people like me, you know, after reading for months uh, multiple studies demonstrating the efficacy of hydroxychloroquine, especially early treatment with zinc, we go and we get this VA study that is a retrospective study that gives high doses of hydroxychloroquine with no zinc in late stages to old vets with tons of comorbidities. Bottom line is, it took me less than 60 seconds to figure out the study was ridiculous. And I asked myself immediately, why would they do this? Why would anybody publish this ridiculous study? And looking back on it now, we now see there are a lot of monetary and political issues surrounding hydroxychloroquine. And There was clearly, in my eyes and in my view at the time, there's a concerted effort to erroneously discredit hydroxychloroquine. And I'll I'll commonly explain the situation to my friends in this way. If I was to tell you that taking a multivitamin was going to protect you from COVID-19, would you say back to me, well, I'm going to need another randomized, controlled, double-blind, placebo crossover study to confirm that it's safe and effective? Or would you just take the multivitamin? I think most of us would just take the multivitamin, and the reason being, if there's potential help, that's amazing, and we all realize that the harm of taking a multivitamin is so minuscule that we wouldn't consider it, and it would seem to us a rational, sentient being that the benefits far, far, far outweigh the risks. Well, that's essentially what we're talking about with hydroxychloroquine, literally one of the safest medication profiles of any drug used. 65 years of experience. In 65 years, 50 deaths attributed to hydroxychloroquine with cardiac toxicity. And when you look at those 50 people, none of them would resemble any patient being treated for COVID-19. So again, what is going on here? Now, the VA study was not very effective at convincing doctors like me 
that hydroxychloroquine was dangerous, and we continued to prescribe it uh, when we came across patients. And then suddenly you had the New England Journal of Medicine and the Lancet, the number one and two most respected medical journals on the face of the earth, come out with studies suggesting that hydroxychloroquine was not only ineffective at the treatment of COVID-19, but that it was killing people. I mean, I'm looking at this like, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, the only way I could see this as a rational doctor who's been practicing for a really long time is somebody could say, hey, listen, I don't think that hydroxychloroquine works. Okay. I mean, I, I guess it's it, it would be you could find rational, reasonable people that would look at the available literature and conclude that maybe it wasn't effective. I could see that. But to suggest that it's dangerous, that's just not how normal people act. And so, again, I was just, what is going on here? And these studies came out. Uh, the the Lancet was published on May twenty second, 2020, in the New England Journal of Medicine a little bit after that. Well, it turned out that doctors like myself and a Dr. James Todaro, who works in in California, a really, really smart guy and a really, really great guy, he went through the data in both the New England Journal of Medicine and Lancet, and it just seemed implausible. They had too many hospital systems, too much data that was compiled, and it was uh, you know the the study itself talked about manually entered data, which right off the bat smells fishy, and he just said, "Listen, this does not look viable. The study, at a very cursory read, uh, does not look legitimate." That's what I'm trying to say. And I was the same way. I read it and I was like, "Listen, I've been studying this medicine for months at this point." And these two articles in the number one and two most respected medical journals on planet Earth. You guys have to understand, when something is published in the Lancet, that is like the Bible to doctors. I mean, the peer review process is rigorous. The ability to get published in a journal like that is monumental. It doesn't just happen willy-nilly. I mean, people work really hard to get really great scientific papers published in journals like the New England Journal of Medicine and the Lancet. And in order to achieve that, you have to have such a great study with limited bias in the studies to even be considered. And then the long, rigorous peer review process. And I can tell you, as somebody who's published scientific literature, it's tough. I mean, they they critique, it comes back, you got to submit all of your your evidence, the the peer review process, it can take years to get something published in the paper. And yet you have this these two studies that come out in the New England Journal of Medicine and the Lancet saying that hydroxychloroquine is not only ineffective, but it is killing people. Again, 65 years, 50 deaths that are attributed from cardiac toxicity. And again, in none of them in the doses that we would use for the treatment of COVID-19. And so Dr. Todaro pressured the New England Journal of Medicine and the Lancet to produce their data. And what happened? They didn't have any. It turned out there was a company called Surgisphere that, by the way, just came into being right after President Trump suggested that hydroxychloroquine might be effective, and they did not have any data. So what I'm telling you is the New England Journal of Medicine and the Lancet were conned there was no data. It was fake. 
these were fake studies. Not that they weren't good studies. It's not like they reviewed them a little while and said, you know, maybe these studies aren't as good as we thought. And then, no, they were fake studies. So let me just draw the straight line so that you guys can understand what I'm telling you. The New England Journal of Medicine and The Lancet are on the take. Yeah, I just said that. The New England Journal of Medicine and The Lancet are on the take. There's no other way to interpret this data. And now for the rest of my life as a physician, listen, whenever I read anything, my father taught me this a long, long time ago, you don't believe anything just because it's in a book. And people are biased. We all have bias, me included. Uh, But I am going to be factoring that into my calculations whenever I read another article in any medical journal, but also the Lancet and the New England Journal and JAMA and any other medical uh, literature out there, it's going to be factored in when I'm reading a paper that they could possibly be on the take, meaning they could be bought and paid for. And this thing only got retracted because they got busted without data. They got the people were asking to have third party verification of the data and there wasn't any. And so they had to retract it two weeks after publication. I'm telling you, as a doctor who's been practicing for 20 years, I've been in medicine almost 30 years. um, There's no way that happened accidentally. And so now we got an issue here. I'm a physician with a practice. I'm trying to protect my patients. I'm trying to figure out how to navigate this pandemic. And I'm being inundated with phony studies and political intervention. And I suggest to you that when I became aware that the New England Journal of Medicine and The Lancet published fake studies to discredit a medication that by my estimation was a very valuable treatment and still is, by the way, we have not done a good job of letting both doctors and patients know that hydroxychloroquine is safe and and likely effective at the treatment of COVID-19 if given early, not late, early in the disease and in combination with zinc. We still haven't we still haven't made that clear. And I'm going to explain a little later in the show what's going on to keep that from becoming clear. Now, any of you guys out there who are doctors, you know, at this point, 53% of doctors in the country are employed. That means they are somewhat controlled by their hospitals. And so there are hospital systems out there that are telling you you can't prescribe hydroxychloroquine. It's not right. But it's a fact. Uh, Many of you want to speak out because I know I'm not the smartest person on the planet. I know lots of doctors have figured this out as well, but they can't say anything. I got my own family and friends telling me, stop talking about this. You're going to become a target for cancel culture. Um, You know, I've gotten some death threats and things like that. And this is crazy. I'm not the guy doing these studies. All I'm saying is there's lots of literature out there that suggests that hydroxychloroquine can be effective at the treatment of COVID. I would have you guys all start with Dr. Fauci's paper written in 2005. That's a great place to start. He's obviously very knowledgeable on the subject, which is kind of curious why he's never talked about it during this entire pandemic. But that's a story for another day. Um, But we got to this point where we realized that the media our government, everybody was preventing this this potentially life-saving knowledge from, from getting out. And so I joined a group of doctors called America's Frontline Doctors, and we traveled to D.C. to basically have a live seminar. And guess what we did during that live seminar? 
we simply had experts in the field come in and discuss a medicine that's been around and FDA approved that's got one of the safest drug profiles for 65 years. We talked about hydroxychloroquine. We discussed masks, which, by the way, when did masks become this untouchable subject that nobody's allowed to have any opinion? If you suggest that masks are ineffective at preventing COVID-19, people look at you like you're a murderer. You're saying evil things, and it's like, I'm just telling you, I'm one of those people I've studied masks now for about 30 years. I'm a surgeon. The first time I asked myself this question, I was in medical school, and I read, and my conclusion was what you would, what the conclusion used to be for most doctors prior to 2020 is that the masks are ineffective at the prevention of influenza-like disease transmission. So basically these respiratory diseases like influenza, paramyxovirus, rhinovirus, coronavirus, the masks don't seem to work. I'm not trying to be mean about it. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. I'm just telling you the data does not suggest that it's effective. Is it 100%? Am I saying there's absolutely no way a mask can be helpful? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, in my opinion, I don't think they are helpful. I'm not positive. I'm just kind of positive. Uh, there's never been any evidence to convince me that the masks are effective, and I do think there's a downside to it. I'm a guy who wears a mask every week, multiple times a week, and I can tell you they irritate your face, they make your eyes water, they make your nose run. It is really tough. It took me a lot of training to mentally control myself so I wouldn't be touching my face all the time. And every time I go out in public, I see people adjusting their masks, pulling it under their nose, wearing it as a chin strap, they're rubbing their eyes, they're touching their nose, they're touching countertops, they're touching doorknobs, more than they would do if they weren't having a mask. And in my opinion, it's making things worse, okay? Not to mention there's a lot of other stuff about um, rebreathing particles and, you know, there are other issues that go on with the mask that are not, not beneficial, but... I'm speaking simply of the transmission of the disease. In my opinion, and it's my opinion, but it's an educated opinion, I feel the masks are causing more harm than good. And I'm not allowed to say that. You know, My wife, if she was sitting right here, she'd probably be punching me in the shoulder telling me to shut up. And this brings me to my next point. The American frontline doctors, led by Dr. Simone Gold, who, by the way, is a brilliant physician and a Stanford-trained attorney, uh, she really organized this stuff, and she was really courageous and um, got us all to D.C. And listen, all of the doctors who went to D.C. to basically have a seminar about information that anybody can read on the Internet, you know what we are all worried about? We are all worried about cancel culture losing our jobs, having people give us death threats, being shut down and picketed and being discredited in the medical community. And guess what? That's exactly what happened. We went up to D.C. and we had 18 million live Facebook followers talking about a medication that's been around for 65 years, FDA approved, meaning the FDA already looked at this and said it's safe. They never asked us to do AKGs. There was never in 65 years any concern about cardiac toxicity or anything else. And then all of a sudden, this medicine turned on a dime and became became a death sentence to anybody who got it. 
And all we did was go up there to try and discuss how how there was a medication out there that had been studied for a long time and that the media was preventing you from learning about it. And that's all we wanted to do was point out information that was already available. I didn't bring up my own research or anything like that. All we were doing was saying, look, it's written down right here. You can read it for yourself. And we had 18 million live Facebook followers, meaning people were interested in what we had to say. And what happened? Big tech shut us down. They absolutely shut us down. That is a suppression of free speech, which is part of this Orwellian nightmare that we are in. And I'm going to talk more about this when we get back from break. You're listening to Dr. Scott Barber on the Doctor's Lounge. We're listening to America's Web Radio. I'll see you guys in a minute. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schurz, as we talk about the topics that doctors talk about amongst themselves, such as Medicare, Obamacare, alternative forms of care, and health information technology. Join us every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. My name is Kyle Hayes, a motorsports student at Alfred State College. Every year, Alfred State students compete in the Great Race, which is a cross-country time endurance rally for vintage vehicles. As you can imagine, it's pretty costly. I'm asking for your help. Your donation can make it possible for these students to live their passion and promote the vintage automobile industry. Please visit our site at give.alfredstate.edu and search Great Race to learn more and help us reach our goal. Thank you. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not... You probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back, everybody, to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. I'm Dr. Scott Barber. We're talking about the COVID-19 pandemic. We're trying to talk about where we've been and where we're going and how we get out of this. I was talking about before the break that America's frontline doctors, led by Dr. Simone Gold, myself, and several other doctors, went up to D.C. for the sole purpose of having a teleconference about hydroxychloroquine and the issues surrounding COVID-19 that the media did not want the public to hear. And 
I think to myself, that information in and of itself should convince every single one of you something is not right. Now, as I said before the break, we were we were presenting our opinions and our and the data, not necessarily always our opinions, but we were just looking at the data that was published in journals and was available for anybody to read on the internet already. We didn't bring up anything new. Uh, we talked about how it worked. We had 18 million live Facebook followers at one point, which shows you that what we were saying was interesting to a lot of people, and big tech shut it down. You have to ask yourself, why would they do that? Now, their argument was that we were making statements against the World Health Organization and the CDC recommendations. Well, I could see that a little bit, couldn't you? I mean, I guess they're so worried about you, you know, our government. They're just so concerned about your well-being that if you have these crazy doctors out there making statements like hydroxychloroquine, a medicine that's as safe as a multivitamin almost, it's definitely safer than Tylenol or Advil or other over-the-counter medicines, that if we were to say, take that, oh my gosh, we'd be exposing you to danger. I could see that, right? No, it's ridiculous. The World Health Organization and the CDC recommendations were predicated on the phony studies that were in the Lancet and the New England Journal of Medicine. Did you just hear what I said? The World Health Organization and the CDC made recommendations regarding hydroxychloroquine that was predicated on fake, phony, made-up studies published in the On The Take New England Journal of Medicine and Lancet. And when I say On The Take, I don't have proof of that. All I can say is it's unheard of. I just cannot see how a study could get published in the New England Journal of Medicine, the number one and two um, medical journals on planet Earth that got retracted two weeks after publication because there was no data to verify. That was what the World Health Organization and the CDC used as a predicate to say, you can't listen to America's frontline doctors. They're dangerous. They're saying things against the World Health Organization and the CDC. Are you kidding me? I mean, are you kidding me? Talk about free speech suppression. Talk about Orwellian dystopian nightmare that we are in with this pandemic. And by the way, we're not out of it yet. Our kids are still not allowed to go back to school. Many states are still in lockdown. There are people in other states, Atlas Gym, up in New Jersey trying to open trying to there's a tattoo parlor uh, out there that are going against government mandates to try and save their businesses and they're being attacked by our government and they're being attacked using phony fake made up lying data and listen I don't want to be saying this stuff. I don't want to be sharing this. I have a a business that I I want to protect, and I don't want to be canceled. But, man, somebody has got to speak out about this stuff, and people have to be made aware that this is craziness and that this is actually very Orwellian, that we can't even discuss things. I mean, medicine, for anybody who's not familiar with it, this is what we do. We talk about treatment options all the time. We have doctors that are not even on two sides of an issue. Sometimes there's like 10 sides to an issue. And doctors have different opinions about things, and we discuss, and we practice. That's why medicine is called an art. It's not a cookbook. It's not like you add a pinch of salt and a little bit of vanilla extract, 
you know, and put in the refrigerator for 30 minutes. It's not like that. There's a lot of nuance, and patients all have different issues, and as physicians, we all have different experiences, and that's why we share and we discuss and we think. And listen, for some reason, out there's this narrative out there that everything we do in medicine is predicated on a double-blind, placebo-controlled, crossover, prospective, randomized study. It's not. There are some things that just don't lend themselves to those kinds of studies. I mean, it's great if you can do it, but it's not possible. And we make decisions all the time that are correlations, that are, um, you know, retrospective reviews, you know, things that are less, um, you know, more prone to bias. But we understand that as doctors. And in fact, when I was going through medical school and residency, we used to have journal club. And the whole purpose was to read scientific literature critically, meaning being able to identify where is the potential bias and what makes this strong and confidence intervals and all kinds of things and understanding the difference between cause and effect and simple correlation. But it doesn't mean that the data is totally useless. It just is another portion of the data, which, by the way, brings me to another point. There's always this in the media. They're always trying to suggest that we're going to have this one study that's going to answer the question. Well, we need another placebo-controlled, randomized, crossover, double-blind study uh, for hydroxychloroquine to answer the question. That's not how it works. A study will come out. It's more information. It's not all the information. We rarely, if ever get the answer that's definitive for all time. It always just adds to the body of information and it needs to be digested and interpreted and and nuanced to treat specific patients. So why this attack on hydroxychloroquine? Why this concerted, and that's what it is, it is a concerted effort to prevent community doctors from prescribing this potentially life-saving drug out in the community? Well, there are several possible um, issues out there. I know a lot of people are familiar with vaccine. You know, that's very popular. There's a lot of people out there that are pushing for this vaccine. I would just tell you as a rational uh, observer, uh, somebody who I hope they have a vaccine, it would be amazing. I never have to worry about this again, but let's just look at facts. Of all the respiratory inf- inf- illnesses that we have, paramyxovirus, rhinovirus, coronavirus, influenza virus, influenza is the only one that we have a vaccine for. Did you hear what I said? There's only one respiratory illness that we have a vaccine for, and it's influenza. And guess what? It's only effective sometimes between 6% of the time up to 40% of the time. Yeah, did you just hear what I said? It's only effective from 6% of the time to 40% of the time. So it's not even a magic bullet for the one virus that we do have a vaccine for. So why would I be excited about the fact that they're telling me they're going to come up with a vaccine in the next couple months for this coronavirus? And here's another thing. I don't even care. I never give the influenza virus a thought in my life. You know what I mean? It's... I get up in the morning, I get in a car, I realize I could die in the car on the way to work. I do. I get it. I know it's not zero that I'm going to get there, but I don't perseverate on it. You know, I get in my car, I drive. Uh, You know, I eat a steak and I know that, you know, that could, you know, elevate my cholesterol and I could die from that. It's a risk that I take. I got on a plane and I flew to D.C. uh, to do this conference with America's frontline doctors, and I'll be honest with you guys, I was much more afraid of flying on the plane 
than I am at contracting coronavirus. And it was miserable. They made me wear a suffocating mask the whole time. Now, the other thing is, and I'm again, I'm just asking you folks to be rational. Uh, go look at the CDC's website. They say they, the CDC, they tell me that the risk of mortality of death from influenza virus is 0.26%. Okay? 0.26%. That's about double a typical flu season. Okay? Now, there are some flus that are worse. I mean, there's, there's, it depends on the virus. But it's low. That's what you need to recognize. It's low. And guess what? It's lower than that. Because the other thing the media isn't telling you is that there are more people out there that have the disease that don't know it that are going to drive that mortality rate number even lower. So at worst, it's 0.26%. Now, think about influenza. Influenza, what do we do with our children about it? You know, maybe we get the flu shot. We And this is, you know, when I was a kid, you were sick. You went to school anyway. Nowadays, we don't do that, and that's a correct move. You know, if your kids are feeling ill, you pull them out of school. You wait till they feel better. You know, you, you keep them fluid, hydrated, and all that. But you don't go nuts. You don't, you know, I, not everybody. I mean, some people may. But most people aren't, like, worried for their child's uh, death when they get influenza. So if we look at this year, we've had about the last time I checked, which is a couple weeks ago, the CDC was reporting that we had about a hundred and uh, I'm sorry, that we had about 30 something deaths attributed to coronavirus in school aged children. And you might say to yourself, my God, that's that's horrifying. And it is. Listen, any any death of any child is absolutely horrifying. And I do not mean to be belittling it. What I'm trying to get at is risk assessment here, because the CDC also reports that we've had about 190 influenza deaths in school-aged children this year alone. And I'm saying to you, what do we do for influenza? Do we quarantine people? Do we do massive testing for it? Do we mandate masks? Do we, you know, what do we do for influenza? We don't do anything. And so I'm asking you, why are we doing all this stuff for coronavirus? And in fact, we have a lot of great data now on school-aged children with the coronavirus, specifically the COVID-19. And in fact, they have some very good studies, the Iceland study, the Ireland study. They have a study in Sweden and Brazil and other places where they allowed their children to go back to school. And they've discovered not a low amount of transmission from kids to either teachers or their parents, zero. That's what I said, zero transmissions from the kids to the parents or to their teachers. So, again, we have good data that shows that our kids are at very low risk of having serious consequences of contracting COVID-19 and that places where they kept the schools open have not shown anything for us to be worried about at returning our kids to school. In fact, the American Academy of Pediatrics is telling us that we're doing more damage by keeping our kids out of school then we are sending our kids to school. So I'm trying to tie all this together and help you guys understand why it is important to have free market medicine, why it is important that the doctor-patient relationship be preserved, why you need to make sure that our country never moves towards socialized medicine. And this pandemic has demonstrated it, it, it so well that I, it's giving me an opportunity to take what I've been trying to explain to you every week and show it so very clearly. 
you know, when I was um, when I was an intern working at the University of Miami, uh, I was in the trauma area, and we had a young patient came in and had a crushed pelvis from a car accident. It was a bad operation, and during this operation, we put a, 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 what we call a pelvic external fixator. It's we put these pins into the bones on your hip bones, and then we, we kind of close the pelvis together, and we use these little little devices to lock these bars together. It's actually coming out of the skin, and these bars hold your pelvis together. And the, the idea is that it helps keep the space small so that when you bleed from all the disruption in your pelvis, that it tamponades the blood. It you know puts direct pressure and prevents you from bleeding to death. So these, when people have crushed pelvises from trauma, putting on an external fixator is is a potentially life-saving uh, treatment method that that prevents patients from bleeding to death internally. So I'm an intern, I'm a, you know, I'm a new doctor, and you know, this, this trauma is going on. I'm in the case with the chief of orthopedics, and he was having an argument with the, what we call the circulating nurse. This is, you know, so when you're in an operating room, you have the surgeon, you have the anesthesiologist up at the head of the table who's keeping the patient safely asleep, you have a tech that hands you the instruments, and then you have what's known as a circulator. And the circulator is the connection from the sterile field of the operating room to the non-sterile field. So if I need something, the circulator can go get it and hand it to us sterilely so that we can maintain a sterile field while we perform the operation. Well, Mitch and this circulator woman were having an argument about something. I can't even remember what it was. And in the midst of this operation, there was a crucial piece of hardware that we needed, and the circulator spitefully purposefully dropped the instrument on the floor to spite the doctor to spite the the guy and i'm sitting there flabbergasted i was like i cannot believe i just saw what i saw this woman in the middle of an operation where we're trying to save a patient's life just dropped this piece of equipment that we needed on the floor just to be mean to the doctor that she was having a fight with and the surgeon used some expletives with her, and I don't blame him for doing it. And I was still, my eyes were wide open, and I was just stunned. And, you know, I'm a young guy at the time, too, so I'm much less cynical than I am now where I'm basically calling out, you know, I would have never called out the Lancet and the New England Journal of Medicine as being on the take back then because I didn't believe that entities like that could be so dishonest. But here we had this situation, and the the chief of orthopedics told this circulator, you're in trouble. After this case ends, this is such an egregious action on your part that we're going to go to the uh, top of the hospital and you are going to be punished. And so the case ended and we eventually did go to a hospital administrator and the oddest thing happened. The hospital administrator confronted the orthopedic surgeon and said, did you swear at this? I'm trying not to use the names of these people. Did you swear at the circulator? And the orthopedic surgeon was like, well, yeah, but she dropped this most critical piece of equipment in the middle of a case where we're trying to save a young person's life. And the hospital administrator just kept pressing, well, it's just uh, it's just unacceptable. You can't swear at these people. And I'm, I'm sitting here like, are you kidding me? She dropped the instrument on the floor. But the bureaucracy doesn't care. They care about their HR. The orthopedic surgeon used... Uh, 
cuss words with this circulator. That apparently in the eyes of the bureaucracy was just unforgivable. And so Mitch got in trouble. And guess what happened to the circulator? They decided that she was too unstable to be in the operating room, so they promoted her. That Yes, they promoted her. And I know any of you guys out there who work in a bureaucracy have seen this type of behavior before. They promoted her out of the operating room so that she could supervise the operating room. And their thinking was if she's not in the operating room, she can't do any damage by dropping the, uh, the instruments on the floor. This is how the bureaucracy thinks. They don't care about the patient. They don't have any fidelity to the patient. It's a bureaucracy. And we used to, when I was in, in residency and when I was in medical school, we used to refer to the bureaucracy as the beast. And what I'm describing to you is socialized medicine. The reason that the proponents of socialized medicine want socialized medicine, they're going to tell you it's because they want to deliver health care to everyone. That's not true. What they want to do, at least the people who are trying to implement this up at the top, what they want to do is they want to control medicine and take the doctor and the patient out of the decision-making process. And the reason that they need to be able to do that is for something just like this. We have a pandemic of COVID-19 that, by my estimation, is very well and effectively treated by hydroxychloroquine, Sorry, a medication that's been around for 65 years. FDA approved. It's incredibly safe. It literally has one of the safest profiles of any drug we have. It's generic, meaning not one person is going to get rich off the sale of hydroxychloroquine. We have it everywhere. Contrast that with a medication called rendesmavir. Now, rendesmavir is a medication produced by a company called Gilead, and this medication had one study and again, remember, there's everything is attacking all of the studies on hydroxychloroquine, of which there are legion numbers of them, saying that they're not good enough studies. But we have this one study on rendesmavir that basically shows a decrease in hospital stay of about three days. I think it was like from 15 days to 12 days, something like that. So a modest decrease in hospital stay, no decrease in mortality. Now, rendesmavir is $3,120 for a five-day supply. Do you know that rendesmavir, at least the last time I checked, it's already been bought up by the federal government using tax dollars. So you got this expensive medication designed to treat COVID-19 that is very expensive, that has already been bought up by the government, the available stores using taxpayer money. And at the same time, I'm not even allowed to talk to you about hydroxychloroquine because they say that I'm giving you information that goes against the CDC and the WHO that got their information based on these fake studies in the Lancet in the New England Journal of Medicine. Are you following me here? This is what happens when socialized medicine, government bureaucracy gets into control. They don't care about you as an individual patient. And I actually, until this COVID-19 outbreak came on, I didn't realize how bad the situation was. I didn't realize that journals like The Lancet and the New England Journal of Medicine could be corrupted to publish fake data saying that hydroxychloroquine is ineffective and dangerous that had to be retracted two weeks later when they were caught, defying belief that this could have been an accident. There's just, I'm sorry, I, you know, I was born at night. I just wasn't born last night. I don't see how there's any way that happened accidentally. You compound that with they're doubling down. They came out with a study 
what that we call the Brazil study that got published in JAMA. And immediately they were noted to be using toxic doses of hydroxychloroquine, no zinc in very sick patients. And it was, uh, again, what is going on here? The Brazilian government is, is uh, federally investigating the people who did the Brazil study to, again, try and discredit hydroxychloroquine. What is going on here? Why this effort to discredit a 65-year FDA-approved drug? Um, we know that our medical journals are corrupted, our FDA. So Dr. Hahn, the head of the FDA, a lot of confusion got started because as this pandemic was going forward, we were looking at hydroxychloroquine and the information was getting out there that if given early with zinc that it could be effective and then suddenly the New England Journal of Medicine and the Lancet pushed, published these phony studies that shuts down the use of hydroxychloroquine. I, Not me. I knew that that was phony, and I was studying the data, so I was still treating patients when appropriate. But there were a lot of governors in blue states that used this fake phony data in the Lancet New England Journal of Medicine to ban hydroxychloroquine and actually threaten pharmacists and doctors in those areas from prescribing that medicine. And in fact, there are doctors out there who are unsure about hydroxychloroquine. They, they're not as um, deeply invested in the research as I have been, and they, they kind of don't know, like, hey, is, is it dangerous? Is it effective? And so the, the, the overall effect of this has been to inhibit widespread use of hydroxychloroquine out in the community when this disease is, is treated early with zinc at low doses of hydroxychloroquine. And so we went to the FDA, America's Frontline Doctors, Dr. Hahn, and we said, listen, in order to alleviate this confusion, let's make hydroxychloroquine on-label use for the treatment of COVID-19. Now, listen to me. This gets really in the weeds, but the FDA, once a medicine is FDA approved, a doctor can prescribe it for any indication. As long as I prescribe it in the dose that it's FDA approved for, the interval that it's FDA approved for, and for the duration that it's FDA approved for, it, it doesn't matter why I prescribe the medicine, I can prescribe it. So if I get a medicine that was FDA approved to treat high blood pressure, and we dis discover that it helps for headaches, I can, I can prescribe that for headaches legally. There's no problem with it. All I need is the consent of the patient and to prescribe that medicine in the parameters given by the FDA when they approved it. Now, hydroxychloroquine is one of those medications. It is FDA approved for 65 years. It's designed to treat malaria. It's also known as Plaquenil. We treat patients with uh, lupus and rheumatoid arthritis with it as well. But because it's an FDA-approved drug, as long as I use it within the parameters it's FDA-approved for, I'm allowed to prescribe it for COVID-19. It's just between the doctor and the patient. But so much of this phony data in these journals, the way these governors have exercised powers that they don't have, it's prevented widespread use of hydroxychloroquine. And the FDA had the ability to make it on-label use. I mean, it should be just available anyway, but making it on label would alleviate in this any of this uh, confusion. It would also make it very clear that governors do not, they don't anyway, but governors are exercising this power they don't have to basically threaten the medical licenses of doctors and the licenses of pharmacists in certain states, 
not Georgia, thank God, but in certain states, and they're ostensibly preventing the widespread use of hydroxychloroquine. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this is just absolutely corrupt and wrong, and it needs to stop. And, you know, this Orwellian world we're living in with cancel culture and, you know, we're not allowed to uh, express opinions that differ from from you know certain other opinions anymore and most of us make the calculation that well you know i'm just going to lay low i got a good life you know my house you know i got my kids they're going to school and i have a business and you know what i'm just uh i'm just going to let this go and um i'm telling you that the time has passed for that it is time for people to speak up for what is right it is time to call people out when they're attacking others for having a, an, an alternate opinion. And you ask me about this, and I'm going to tell you what we've got in our future. Melbourne, Australia. So Melbourne, Australia, they're having their own issues with this. And Melbourne has implemented some new laws predicated on the COVID-19 pandemic. In Melbourne, Australia, this was in the American Institute uh, for Economic Research. Police can enter a person's home without a warrant in Melbourne, Australia. This is not Cuba. This is not the old Soviet Union. This is Melbourne, Australia. They have an 8 p.m. curfew. There's a $1,652 fine if you're outside without a valid reason. You guys hear what I'm saying? Does this remind you of anything? Papers, please. May I see your papers? This is going on not in Soviet Union, you know, not not the old East Germany. This is not China. This is Melbourne, Australia. You cannot visit family or friends. $200 fine if you're not wearing your mask. You can only exercise once per day for up to an hour. You can't go more than three miles away from your hound, your house. Weddings are illegal. There are no gatherings of any size. And the army is on the streets fining and arresting people. Since March 21st, a total of 193,740 spot checks have been conducted by police across Victoria. Are you hearing this? Protest and activism is illegal. People have already been arrested for peaceful gatherings. And, of course, the media is biased towards anyone who's like me, is saying, wait a second, there's hydroxychloroquine out there. The mortality rate from this disease is around uh, what we would see for a flu. Our kids seem to be um, largely immune from this, and sending them back to school would be absolutely safe. And this is what's going on in Melbourne, Australia. Folks, if we don't start speaking up right now, this chip, chip, chip at what's going on is is going to get worse and worse and worse. America's frontline doctors went up to D.C. and Dr. Simone Gold lost her job over this. Uh, cancel culture has attacked every single one of us. We get death threats. You guys need to be thinking about this. I hope this information helps you guys make some decisions, and we're going to talk more about this uh, next time. You've been listening to Dr. Scott Barber on the Doctor's Lounge America's Web Radio. Have a great week. I'll see you guys next time. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.